You may have heard it this last week, but when a newly elected member of Congress made the statement that the world was going to end in 12 years if climate change is not addressed, that got me thinking about similar statements made over the years, and some of these statements have been come from very intelligent and brilliant thinkers. You might remember H.G. Wells. He was the author and the futurist. He wrote great books like The War of the Worlds, The Time Machines, The Invisible Man. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in literature four times. But towards the end of his life, Wells grew despairing about the fate of the human race. And one evening at dinner, he laid out his picture for the future. He explained that mankind had failed because evolution had failed to produce in us the right kind of brain. Therefore, Wells claimed, we will destroy ourselves, we will die out as a species, and revert to the mud and the slime from which we arose. And he said, we shall deserve this fate, adding that the human race had only 1,000 years more to survive. And you're probably familiar with the name Stephen Hawking, the brilliant scientist who suffered from ALS and until his death this last March at the age of 76. And Hawking will be most remembered for his book, A Brief History in Time, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for a record 237 weeks. And Hawking is also ranked number 25 in the BBC's poll of the 100 Greatest Britons. But shortly before his death, Hawking theorized that humans would turn the planet into a giant ball of fire by the year 2600. And that would be due to overcrowding and energy consumption, which will make the earth uninhabitable. And as a result, according to Hawking, humans need to go and live on another planet. I, I wondered if we messed this one up, what are we going to do to the next one? But he said that humans will need to colonize another planet within 100 years or face extinction. And stating in a BBC documentary, he said, with climate change, overdue asteroid strikes, epidemics, and population growth, our own planet is increasingly precarious. And Hawking was part of a group that called themselves the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative, which plans to develop ultra-fast, light-powered spacecraft which can look for habitable worlds that might be circling the nearby star Alpha Centauri. To quote Hawking, he said, Such a system could reach Mars in less than an hour, or reach Pluto in days, pass Voyager in under a week, and reach Alpha Centauri in just over 20 years, unquote. Now, Hawking's thoughts are similar to SpaceX and Tesla CEO Elon Musk. And Musk has said that there is going to be an extinction event if humans stay on Earth, going so far to say that Mars would be a good alternative to Earth. I wonder if he's seen Mars, but that's a whole other story. And these kinds of predictions remind me of the REM song, and, and you know, I'll be watching TV or something, and I'll, I'll quote the REM song, it's the end of the world as we know it. You heard that? Yeah, I'm sorry I did that. <laughs> anyway, the people that make such predictions of these are called prognosticators, prognosticators. And according to Webster, a prognosticator is one who predicts the future based on signs or symptoms. Now, the word prognosticate comes from the Greek word prognosko. Gnosko, which means knowledge, 
and pro, which means before. Prognosco, to pronosticate, means to know beforehand. And we also get the word prognosis from this. We've heard that. Prognosis. Prognosis is the prospect of recovery is anticipated from the usual course of disease or peculiarities of the case. Now, prognosco is the Greek word we find in Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom God foreknew. Prognosco, knew beforehand. He also predestined. But before we get into this verse and study what it means that God foreknew his foreknowledge, we have to understand something that's extremely important here, or we will misunderstand God's foreknowledge in what has to do with salvation. Because not only do today's prognosticators have their vision of the future wrong, the world also has a false or faulty use of the word prognosco. So we not only have to dump from our minds the world's predictions of the future because God has already said in his word, the wisdom of this world is what? Foolishness to God. And the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So we, all, we have to dump from our mind their predictions, their prognosco, but we also have to dump from our minds the world's use of what it means to foreknow. Because if we carry the world's definition into Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we will come away with, with misunderstanding. We have to dump the world's definition of what foreknowledge means, or we will have misconceptions and wrong ideas about God, and misconceptions about us as believers, and misconceptions about our salvation. So this is a good example of how important it is to go to God's word, to study it, understand what God is saying, and be willing to drop our preconceptions and misconceptions. So please look once again at the 8th chapter of Romans, the 29th verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Because Romans 8, 29 tells us of the foreknowledge of God, and then it states in very succinct terms the purpose of our salvation. The purpose of our salvation. Why did God save us? But we begin with the foreknowledge of God. Romans 8.29 For those whom he prognosco knew beforehand, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Forno, prognosco, to know beforehand. Now, in the Bible, as it's used of God and in the Bible, prognosco, foreknowledge, is knowing real things and actual events before they exist or happen. Real thing, it's not just pronosticating this may happen or it looks like this is going to happen. Prognosco is what is actually going to happen, what is real. In the Greek language, it's knowing of reality before it's real and events before it occurs. This is the key. It's knowing reality before it is real. It's not a prognosis. It's not a pronostication that says, we think such and such is going to happen based on what we know now. With the foreknowledge of God, it's knowing reality, what will be and what will happen. In Christian theology, foreknowledge refers to the all-knowing, omniscient nature of God, where he knows everything. For all time and for all, all eternity. He knows all things and events before they happen. And importantly, 
God knows all people before they exist. This is the key. Look at what or whom better God foreknows. The first part of Romans 8.28 or 8.29. And these whom he predestined. God knows all people before they exist. It reminds me of a story that my professor told me in seminary. And some of you have heard this before. He said that one day his little granddaughter crawled up on his lap. She looked him in the eyes and she asked, Grandpa, where was I before I was born? And he said he paused and he thought for a moment and then he responded, Sweetheart, you were a happy thought in the mind of God. God knew you before you were born. In fact, that's what God told Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah that he knew him before he was formed in his mother's womb. The most common error among Christians about predestination arises from a misreading of Romans 8.29. There we are told that God's predestination is grounded or the basis is in his, his foreknowledge. That somehow his predestination is grounded in his foreknowledge. And, and this has been misunderstood quite often to mean that God looked down through the corridors of time he saw what you and I would do, and then he stuck that into his plan. It does not reckon with the fact that God created time, and therefore all events in time when he created the world, that he does not look down through history, but he looks at history as a complete whole all at the same time. But apart from such weighty philosophical objections, we take note that Romans 8.29 does not say that God foreknew certain decisions on our part. Of course, he, he knew that, but it's not, it does not say that God foresaw our faith, and on that basis, he predestinated us. It's, it's nothing of the sort. Rather, Romans 8.29 says that God foreknew certain people. The study of the idea of knowledge, gnosis, in the Bible shows that it usually involves a choice of intimate relationship a personal intimate relationship. It speaks of Adam when he knew his wife and they conceived. Romans 8.29 means that God foreloved certain people. God foreloved us. He knew us intimately. He predestinated them, us, and he chose us. We did not choose him. I thought this week of, of Josiah Condor, and he, he spoke of God's choosing in his old hymn from the early 19th century. He also speaks of our own inability to receive Christ had God not chosen us. In talking to God, Condor wrote in his hymn, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. The heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me." Thou from the sins that stained me hast washed and set me free and to this end ordained me that I should live for thee. It's true of every Christian. You were known and loved by God. You were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world, not because you had anything going for you, because you had anything to do with it. And one more thought on the foreknowledge of God, then we'll move on to the purpose of salvation. 
And turn over to Acts chapter 2, second chapter of Acts, verse 22. As you know, the second chapter of Acts is about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming upon the 120 who are gathered in the upper room and, and, and their proclamation uh, of the gospel. And Acts chapter 2 contains Peter's first gospel sermon, the first gospel sermon at Pentecost. And, and I want you to see here what Peter has to say. This is the first gospel sermon, and he speaks of the foreknowledge of God and what he has to say about it. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know, there's our word there again, gnosko, just as you know. Now watch this. This man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put them to death. As believers in Jesus Christ, we were chosen and predestinated according to the foreknowledge of God. And Jesus Christ was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. You know, we need to see something because Christ was also foreknown by God. We were foreknown by God. And go back to the other argument. We don't say that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that a man by the name of Jesus was going to die on the cross and fit that into his plan. God foreknows what will be because he decreed what will be. It's his predetermined plan, foreordained before the foundation of the world. God foresees all the reality of what will be, who will be, and what will happen. And so foreknowledge refers to the all-knowing, omniscient nature of God, whereby he knows reality before it is real, and knows all things and events before they happen, and God knows all people before they exist. So this brings us to the why. Why? Why does God cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose? Why did God choose us before the foundation of the world? Why does God bring us to salvation? And there's a clear statement of that purpose in Romans 8.29. The clear statement of the why, the purpose of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become what conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, the purpose of salvation might surprise you, because the purpose of salvation is not primarily for you. Salvation has to do with you, obviously, but the primary purpose is not for you. The purpose of salvation was not primarily to deliver you from hell or take you to heaven for you to have a joyous time there forever. That's sort of a secondary and corollary benefit. It's a great benefit. <laughs> and we praise God for these benefits. 
The purpose of salvation was not so that you would go to heaven and live in some mansion up there and like to think about in John 14, we have the mansions. Yes, we look forward to that. That's a great benefit for all eternity to live with God in his house. The purpose of salvation was not to make you into a perfect person who would live forever in eternal bliss. These are all wonderful benefits. No, the purpose of your salvation was so that you would be conformed to the image of God's Son. And what does that mean? God's plan in salvation is to make the saved like the Son. To make the saved like Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin. It's a wonderful benefit. Removal of guilt, the granting of peace and joy and love and all of that. All of those are part of the reality of salvation. But the goal of salvation, God's goal, is to make you like Jesus Christ. And salvation, and don't miss this, to be saved cannot stop short of Christ-likeness. It cannot stop short. Or it's not the salvation that God has planned. It can't just end with our calling and God calls and then there's some kind of hope that it's going to continue from there. It cannot end with justification that he justifies and it never goes beyond that. He just kind of hopes that, well, it's going to get to glory. No, the predetermined plan of God, the purpose of God, the kind intention of his will is that we all be brought to, to glory. Verse 30 of Romans chapter 8. We see this in the unbroken chain of salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. We are predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Remember, we talked about predestination last week. It's a surveying term. It means to mark out ahead of time. Uh, the, the surveyor goes out and sets the boundaries of the property. And then everything within those boundaries are marked out ahead of time by God, everyone to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, there are several words in Scripture that, that have this idea of transformation, conformity. And the word translated conformed here in, uh, in Romans 8, 29, sumorphos is the word. Morphos, you've heard that to be morphed. You know, <laughs> uh, people talk about that today. Sumorphos means to be, to bring into the same form, to be morphed into the same form. We are to be morphed into the same form as Jesus Christ. This is God's real but unimaginable plan. So, so turn over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Third chapter of Philippians, the 20th verse. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about our citizenship in heaven, one of the benefits of salvation. And then he goes on to the purpose. Philippians 3, 20. For our citizenship is heaven, from which also we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he uses two words for this conformity or transformation. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body 
of his glory. Now, how in the world is he going to do that? By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Conformity, to take the same form. And think about what it means for a minute. For our humble bodies, this, this earthly tent that we live in, that's what Paul calls it, it's a tent. It wears out. It goes to pot, <laughs> literally. You know, the older we get, the more we hurt. And what doesn't hurt, what? Doesn't work. Because, because the body, amen, we'll get amens on that one, because that's just the way it is. And, and there's going to be a time where God takes this body and he's going to give, a, give us a building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And here he says it's going to be in conformity with Christ's glorified body. What was Christ's glorified body after he rose from the dead? It's, it's talking about your holiness, your blamelessness, your righteousness, your spiritual perfection. And I don't know all that that means, but I do know this, that our bodies in conformity with his is, means that someday we will have a body just like Christ's glorified body. And the only thing we know about his glorious body is what we see as he appeared after he rose from the dead, right? What was Jesus' body like after he rose from the dead? He was visible. He was touchable. He could speak. He could eat. He could transport himself supernaturally, rapidly. He could live in time and space, and he could live outside of time and space. He was perfect and sinless and visible only to those to whom he chose to reveal himself. Now, I don't know what all that means, but we're going to be brought into the same form as the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. In whatever way glorified humanity can be like incarnate deity, we will be like Christ. And it's a spiritual reality, foreknown by God, and yet there will be a glorified body. There's going to be conformity to the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Conform to the image of Christ. That word image is really a great word. It's the Greek word E-I-K-O-N, icon. Does that sound familiar? We get the word icon from it. We have little icons on our computer, little symbols. And those little symbols represent the program or the application that we want to run. So we click on the icon because we know that's going to take us to the program. The, the Greek Orthodox Church has paintings of great Christian leaders of the past, and they call them icons. An icon can refer to an artistic representation such as a painting or a statue. A Catholic church is filled with icons. But as human beings, we are made in the image and likeness, the icon of God. In that we are icons of God. We're created in his image. Now when you go to produce an icon in, in the true sense, to reproduce a, a replica of somebody else, it's not accidental. You're, you're trying to represent whatever it is it is that you're trying to represent. A statue is a replica, and that's what the word conveys here. We're going to be in the image of Jesus Christ in that somehow God is going to shape us into a replica of him, of Jesus. Now, you know that when God made man, he made him in his image and in his likeness. That's Genesis 1.26. 
But that original image, it's called the Imagio Deo, the image of God, on account of sin, was defaced. It was marred by sin. So that the original body had to be discarded in the grave. But there is coming a time in eternal glory with the intention of God that man would be made, that man would be made in his own image once again and will be restored to the original intent of God. He became one of us that we might become conformed to him. But that's conformity. And that conformity has to do with our glorified bodies when we get to heaven. There's also going to be, I've made up a word, transformity. <laughs> I looked it up in the dictionary. There's no word transformity. So how can you have conformity but not transformity? Well, what's the word we use? Transformation. Transformation. So please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the 18th verse. The word used in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is not sumorphous to bring to the same form, but it's metamorpho, metamorphous. Does that sound familiar? Metamorphosis. Where do we use that? We use it in science. We use it in biology. You know, where the, the, the caterpillar goes into the chrysalis, and then in a few weeks it emerges from the chrysalis transformed. The butterfly has absolutely no, no, doesn't look anything like what went into the chrysalis. That, that's, trans, that's transformation. And so 2 Corinthians 3.18 is talking about our transformation into the image of Christ. It, it's more than just our conformity with the glorified body. He says in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, are being transformed, present tense, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Metamorphosis. We are being transformed in the here and now into the same image from glory to glory. It's by the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 4 says it is, it is Christ. It's the image of God. It is Christ. We know we're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in the here and now into the same image from glory to glory. It's a progressive transformation here and now into the image of Christ. And if we studied spiritual transformation more, we would say that he's transforming our very being, our very soul, who we are. It's not just our character and our attitudes, but it's but it's who we are in Christ. In other words, it is God's predetermined intention in saving you that in every day, in every way, you are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the progression from glory to glory. That is God's primary purpose for saving you, to make you like Jesus Christ and to one day bring you in glory, to bring you to full glory. Now, now, in a practical sense, we see how that transformation takes place here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to back up to, to verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
Because in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been using the imagery of the glory of God in giving the law to Moses. We know it was glorious because Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he received the, the law, and how do we know it was glorious? Because when it came down, his face shone with the glory of God. And Paul agreed that this was all glorious. The glory of the Lord descended on Mount Sinai when God gave the law, and the glory of the Lord descended at the door of the tent of meeting and remained while Moses spoke to God face to face, as one man speaks to another, and how Moses' face shone with God's glory, so he had to wear the veil. So in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul contrasts those days with our own, and I, I'm just going to read it because I think we'll get the point by the time we get down to verse 18. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, that is, the Old Testament, that's what we'd say, the law, a veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16, But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In the Old Testament, they, they saw the glory of the Lord, but it was like looking into water or trying to see a reflection in the water. God was only revealed in types and shadows and very blurred images. As believers, we see the glory of the Lord as looking into a mirror. Now, there's a huge difference between trying to see an image through a veil, as they did in the Old Testament, and looking as an image in a mirror. When we look to Jesus... When we see Jesus in the scriptures and his word, when we behold him in the written word of God, and when we behold the living word of God as we spend time with Jesus, when we behold him, the Holy Spirit transforms us to be more like Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, and I wish I'd put this in the, the outline so you'd have it. So, so I'm going to say it and then say it slow so you can write it down if you'd like to. Warren Wiersbe said, When the people of God look into the Word of God and see the glory of God, the Spirit of God transforms them to be like the Son of God. When the people of God look into the Word of God, when the people of God look into the Word of God, and see the glory of God, the Spirit of God transforms them to be like the Son of God. Every believer in Jesus Christ is free to pursue the divine presence of God, to come into his presence, to get into his word, and experience the glorious transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. So our application of God's truth and grace is pretty straightforward this morning. We begin with foreknowledge, and okay, there's lots of confusion there and those kind of things, but when we come to the application, it's very simple. The more time you spend with Jesus and his word, and consciously spend time in his presence and worship in other ways, the more you will experience his glory. And the more you experience his glory, the more and more you'll become 
like Jesus Christ. The ultimate purpose for us to be glorified is for us to be glorified, and that purpose is fulfilled in us as we are transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. But why does God want this for us? There's a reason behind it. There's a motive behind it. Go back to verse 29 of Romans chapter 8 again. And go to verse 29 and and down to the, the last part. What is the reason for this? That we'd become conformed to the images of his son so that, whenever you say so that, there's a reason that's following in scripture. It's called a purpose clause. We could say, why? So that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. So that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. Why does God want us to be like Jesus Christ? So that there will be many brethren and sisters of whom Christ will be the firstborn. Now the word firstborn is protokos, which means the premier one, not in chronology, not in the meaning that the one was born, actually born first, but the one who has preeminence. To be the firstborn was always meant to be the most notable child. And those of us who were secondborn, we know how that goes, <laughs> right? If you're firstborn, you don't understand anything that I just said. But if you were second or thirdborn, you know what it means to be in the middle. The firstborn was always the most notable child. The only disadvantage of being firstborn is mom and dad practice on the firstborn, and then maybe they get a little bit more right when they come down to us. But anyway, the firstborn is the most notable child because this is the one who inherits everything. This is the one who had all the rights and privileges and honors of being a firstborn. And so it's the position of preeminence. And we know it's not the one that's born first. And this is why I mention this, because there's a particular cult in our community and most communities in the United States that says Jesus was the firstborn. That means he was created first because he was firstborn. But we see a problem because the Lord said in Jeremiah 31, 9, that Ephraim was his firstborn. Now you see the problem here? Who was born first of Joseph's sons? Was it Ephraim or was Manasseh? Manasseh was born first. Ephraim was born second. And you remember when Joseph blessed his sons, he crossed his arms and he put his right hand on Ephraim's head. And in blessing them, Ephraim became the firstborn, the preeminent one. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, it says in in, in Colossians. He was the preeminent one that there might be many that come after him. You see, God had a plan, and the plan is this, that there would gather around Jesus Christ a redeemed humanity made in his image who would view him as preeminent. That's God's predetermined plan. And thus forever and ever they would praise and honor and glorify him. And that's why we were saved. And why do we need to be like Christ? Because that allows us not only to praise and honor him by what we ascribe to him in praise, but to reflect him in our likeness to him 
And it's another way to manifest his preeminence. You see, the ultimate end, the ultimate end of salvation is the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ. And the glory of the Son calls for preeminence among a, a redeemed humanity who will see that preeminence forever and ever and ever and glorify Him. When we get to heaven and every time we look at ourselves and look at others, we're going to see <laughs> that's just Christ. That's just Jesus Christ. And by reflecting Him, I give Him more glory, that He may be the most glorious among those who are glorious. God wants holy, glorified beings who forever and ever and ever would recognize the majesty and the wonder and the preeminence of his Son. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that in all that we say and do and study in your word, it always comes back to Jesus. It always comes back to Jesus. And Father, in doing that, we recognize that it's only because of him. It's only because of his sacrifice on the cross. It's, it's only because of, of you loving us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we receive Jesus Christ, you begin that process through your Holy Spirit of making us more like him, of restoring all that was lost to the image of God in the sin of mankind and in the fall. Father, I thank you that you're going to bring us to glory. I thank you for the glorified bodies that we will enjoy forever and eternity, those glorified bodies that are free from sin, free from all corruption those bodies that will work perfectly and will be suited for heaven for all eternity. And Father, I thank you that in those bodies we will reflect and honor and glorify our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a glory that will be. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.